All right, open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 4. We keep going in this book. It's been a couple weeks. We got the rain event last week and uh, tried to do that outside thing. And um, So it's been a couple weeks, and I'll try and put what Paul writes here into context so that we can understand what's what's going on. It is Father's Day, and God has always been faithful. Um, we don't typically like make big deals. We don't let the calendar kind of dictate what we do on Sunday mornings. We kind of plug through books, and... I'm amazed how often what we're doing and what God's putting his word fits. You'll see a lot of Father's Day stuff in this text, even though that's not the intention necessarily. I'm glad it worked out that way. Uh, If you think about Father's Day and fathers, um, so much trouble, I think, in our world and in our lives has to do with how we relate or don't relate to our fathers. I think you could point to a lot of cultural issues that stem from from that. I think you can... um, see a lot of spiritual things that stem from that. And I was struck studying the, the, the passage this week on how important it is for us to understand spiritually what it means that God is our Heavenly Father. And just like culture breaks down when we don't have a good relationship with the Father in the home, I think spiritually as Christians we lose a lot of what God's called us to because we don't understand that. And uh, really f- going to focus on that th- that idea today. There is a couple things I want to do to set this up. One is we have all, you hear this through church all the time that our, that Christianity is about a relationship, not about a religion. If you've been around an evangelical church long enough, you'll hear that phrase. And I absolutely 100% believe it. What I think we fail to understand is what does it mean to have that relationship? Uh, we say that it's a cliche, but we don't give much thought to what it means to have a good relationship with our heavenly father. The other is a story that, that, um, I think I've shared it publicly here once before that I heard somebody else. I don't know if it's fictional. I don't know if it's real. Uh, but a, a gentleman about my age, I, I presume, had a couple sons uh, about my son's ages. They're in their 20s now. And one of those sons tragically passed away. And the father was grieving the loss of his son, obviously. And he said these words. What What upsets him almost more than anything is that his son never lived to have a child of his own. And so he'll never understand how much he, the father, loved him. You know, And so there's, there's this connection there. I don't know that we understand how much God loves us in Christ. Um, and, and so that's what I'm driving at today. I, I really hope we go, go away from here. The songs we just sang, I almost wish we could sing again. You're, we're a child of God in Christ, and that means a lot. And Paul's trying to make the case that it is so much more about that than it is any set of rules, any religion, anything that, that would uh, we would count on for our relationship with our Father. It strictly is a, a relationship that he's provided through Christ. And so I'm going to read, actually starting in chapter 3 at verse 23, we're going to focus on chapter 4, 1 through 11, but I want to put it in context again. So chapter uh, 3, verse 23, goes like this. Before the coming of this faith... We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were one, were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourself in Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, There is, uh, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also, when you were under age, you were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption of son, to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit of his son into your, our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So we'll stop there, okay? Let's pray. Um, God, again, just drive home to us, please, um, that in Christ we are your children. And that relationship is what is uh, important. You desire it for us, and God, give us a, a desire ourselves for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, basic big picture, and it doesn't necessarily follow your outline, but here's the idea. You're adopted children of God, so quit acting like slaves because Jesus came. There you go. You can doze off. There's the outline. But um, let me give it to you anyway, just so you wouldn't waste your drive here. A is acting like slaves. Paul is talking to these people, and he's again, they're, they're Galatians who have accepted Jesus Christ. And Judaizers had come in and said, you have to be circumcised. You have to do all the ritualistic things in order to be right with God. And Paul's trying to make the case over and over, no, you're free because of, of what Christ has done for you. And so point A here is worldly principles. Chapter 4, verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, though he owns the whole estate. And we've seen this week after week. That a young child in that culture, whether it be Jewish, with a bar mitzvah, think of a bar mitzvah. The Romans had a similar uh, ceremony. It was called the toga virilis. The Greeks had a similar one. The idea is that at some point, a young man is no longer a child and that they have the rights, responsibilities of a, of a grown person. They would literally change their clothes. They would, they would take on a different responsibility. And what Paul is saying is as long as the Old Testament law was in place, God was treating you like a child under age. You needed somebody to hold your hand and tell you how to behave. And you weren't ready for the freedom that comes in Christ. And he said, even though, verse 1, you own the whole estate, you can't act like it yet. It's like the images we see sometimes of a, of a child that is the next heir to a throne. But they're a child still. And so, yes, they sit on the throne, but somebody else really runs the state, you know. And what Paul's saying is that you own the whole thing, but you can't, I can't treat you like that yet. Okay, that's point, that's verse 1. The, the heir, verse 2, is subject to guardians and trustees, and I want you to note this, until the time set by the father. So he was under the care of the law or the people that ran the estate until the father, or culturally, till the father decided you're old enough now to be a grown-up. 
Because later on we're going to read in verse 4 a Christmas verse, which is when the time had fully come, God sent his son. We're going to connect these two. It's in the context of the heavenly father saying, now you're ready. Okay, And so you have that time set by the father. Verse 3, so also when we were under age, we were in slavery to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now there's a term for us, and we've got to unpack that. When I first read elemental spiritual forces of the world, I think of things whizzing around the air and flying around and stuff like that. Let me break that down a little bit. Elemental forces, ABCs, okay? It's a Greek word that means anything lined up. Could be an alphabet, could be military. But there was a time when God dealt with mankind just through very basic things. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. It was like teaching a child ABCs. The law has been equated to like when you teach a young child the dotted line of an A and you have them trace that line. The law was intended to show you how God wanted you to live, but all you're doing is going through the motions there. But he calls them the elemental forces, spiritual forces of the world, of mankind. What is it that he's getting at here? Here's what I think he's getting at. Throughout history, man has always said, here's how you can be right with the universe or with the world or with the gods or with each other or whatever, and I'll give you one word for it, and it this word, I don't want to just limit it to this, but one word, karma. Most of human history says, you do good, you'll get good. Maybe not in this life, maybe the next life. Maybe it's not even religious, but you just think good people will eventually be rewarded and bad people will eventually get what they want. That's the elementary way the world has always worked. Christianity throws that on its head because we don't get what we deserve. But you know, I've watched a lot of basketball. There's a phrase in basketball called ball don't lie, right? Somebody, you think they get foul, the ref doesn't call it, the next play's a turnover, you say ball don't lie. You got what you deserve. Most of mankind, organized religion or not, operates under that form. Flat out pagan, okay? I offered my sacrifice to the gods, therefore God will reward me, or I'm right with God, or I've staved off his or her judgment for now. Judaism was the same way. You're blessed if you keep the law. You're cursed if you don't. All mankind, until the coming of Christ, operated under this universal way of thinking about your relationship with God. That's why it's an elemental spiritual force or element of, of mankind. It's this cause and effect thing. We th- we, and I think we operate there, even though we would say differently, we think nice people will get rewarded and bad people won't. And we make judgments right away on somebody's circumstance. I mean, I can't tell you how many times your poor pastor up here sees something in the world and says, well, they probably deserve that. You know, it's just our natural way to think of things. That's what he's saying. Most people think like that. But the grace of God contradicts this. Grace, by definition, is you don't get what you deserve, or you get what you don't deserve. Paul would put it to the Ephesians this way. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It's a gift of God. That throws the basic understanding of the universe upside down for most people. Or Psalm 103.10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's how what, that's what Christ did. He turned that all upside down. Now, what he says in verse, and this is my point B, and we're going to jump down to verse 8 for this, is wasted progress. Paul had come to the Galatians, told them the gospel, they had accepted it, but now they were going back under those rules, thinking, yes, I know, but. And so I want to use this analogy for a second. My name is George Joseph Lakatos Jr., 
Okay, that means there is a senior involved. Now, he passed away a, a dozen years ago or so. Now, I could tell you I am George Sr.'s son by showing to you a birth certificate. I can't even say birth certificate, but he's showing you a birth certificate. That's, one th- that's a legal standing. But it's another thing to say, at the time, I could pick up the phone and call him and talk to him. What I'm trying to get at is there's a lot of believers even that they will point to a legal conversion. And it's, it, it's you know, uh, I walked the aisle when I was five. I got baptized when I was 12 or I did this or I did that. I am now a child of God. And God wants what's so much more than that. He does not want a distant relationship with us where I can plop down the birth certificate and say, see, I'm your son. He wants to have that relationship. And so he's saying, why would you go back to just the legal definition of your right with God when you can have a relationship with the God of the universe? So verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. He's saying when you live by that performance-based thing, you may not serve a pagan idol, but you're not serving the God of the Bible. And so some commentator put it this way, if even as Christians, if I say, well, I pray a lot, okay, I've got news for you. There's probably Muslims in the world that pray way more than you do today, okay? If you say, well, uh, you know, I serve a lot, I do a, a lot of, there are flat out lost people that have probably done way more community service than any of us have, right? Or I've gone on mission trips. There's, the, there's people out there that make their members go on mission trips. See, if we just start measuring up by how good we are or how bad we are, there's other people that can trump us in that. And if it's up to that, then they're, they're closer to God than we are if you go down that definition. And he's saying, no, you're serving. See, here's the deal. The enemy, Satan does not care how you get there. If he can keep you from a relationship with God, he'll do it. For some people, you flat out are going to deny it and be rebellious and perverted and all that and thumb your nose at God. For other people, it's going to be, I'm going to think it's all up to what I'm doing and never enter into a relationship with God. Goofy illustration, I know it is. If you are uh, directionally challenged, this will lose you, okay? But if you want to go from here to, say, uh, Shawnee Mission, Kansas, right now, Highway 169 by the airport is shut down. You can't go that way. That's always my favorite way to go because I kind of like seeing downtown Kansas City. So now you have to make a choice. If you go down 169, you can go north on 29 for about half a mile and then pick up 635 and go south. Okay? Some of you are like, who cares? And some of you are shaking your heads. Or you can go down 169 to Briarcliff, get off on 9 just for a second and get back to 635. I have for months now not believed my GPS because my GPS tells me it's quicker to go north on 29 and then south on 635. So I go south on 169.9. I do the other way. And I have for months looked for the opportunity to verify how correct I am. Okay. Well, so what I do when, when that splits at 29 and 169, I look at the vehicles around me and I hope that I will run into them on 635. And I hope that I'll be in front of them to prove that I was faster than them. <laughs> Well, last week, I was passing two, they were construction vehicles, so I thought, they're going a little slower, but uh, they had trailers, they were very unique vehicles, and sure enough, when I do my route, they're a half mile ahead of me by the time we meet up. The GPS was right all along, okay? That, here's the goofy story, or here's the reason for that goofy story. Satan doesn't care if you follow the rules 
or you do your own thing, as long as you're not in a relationship with God, it takes you to the same place. You may think you're getting there a little faster or not. What I'm trying to tell you is it's not about whether or not you do the right things. It's about whether you have a relationship with God. So he says in verse 9, for instance, it's now that you know God, and I love this, or rather are known by God. It's one thing to say you know who God is or what God is or, or anything like that. It's another thing for God to know you. Jesus will say, I never knew you to some people who did very religious things. James would say, even the, the demons know who Jesus is and the, or God is and they shudder. So it's not about knowing God, it's whether he knows you or not. We have a joke in our family because, uh, and I, and Jana will correct me, I, I used probably the wrong name this morning, but there's several high, more highly prominent athletes in the world today that my sons got to play against in high school and other places. Uh, Drew Locke is one of them, I think. Um, but the phrase in our house is, there's our friend Drew Locke, or there's our friend so-and-so. Do we, we have other friends. Who? Ochai, Obaji, yeah. That's our friend Ochai. Or that's our friend Ronnie Bell from Park... They don't know me at all, right? I know them, but they don't know me. It's another thing to say, hey, Ochai gave me a call when he... You know, that's a whole different ball game. There's too many Christians running around saying, oh yeah, I know God. But they're not in a relationship with him. And, and for some of them, I think, are saved and they, and they just haven't hopefully understood this relationship aspect of it. Some of them are not. They've just gone through the motions and think that's why they have a relationship with God. That's not why they have a relationship with God. And so he says, it's not whether you know him, but does he know you? Verse 9 goes on to say, how is it that you're turning back on those weak and miserable forces? He's saying all those rules don't do anything. They're weak. They're worthless. Um, Paul would tell the Colossians, they're, they, are, um, they do not uh, stop the sensual indulgences or the desires for sensual things. It's one, and again, the same illustration is there's laws in place, but there's certain things I do or don't do because I want to maintain a relationship with my children or my wife. Right, and I always say I could go buy a speedboat today, today, but that would not be a good day for the Lakatos household, right? That would, and and I don't want a speedboat, but there's a number of things. I mean, make it. I could go. Well, I don't want to go down. Well, think of all the things that a a husband can do, or a wife can do, or a child can do, that's perfectly legal, but would ruin that relationship, right? The the idea is to get to the heart where I don't want anything to come between me and God, not just keeping the rules. If I simply didn't have adultery because Jenna laid down a rule that said don't have adultery, how far does that get us, right, in our relationship? The reason God said you have no other God is because he wants to have this exclusive relationship with us. That's what's behind the rule. So he says in verse 9, do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? If you go down that path, you're constantly going to be trying to measure up. He says in verse 10, you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. That's the idea of the Sabbath and year of Jubilee and Pentecost, all the things that the Jews were saying, you got to do these things to be right with God. And we have those in our culture too. There are certain things that you are supposed to do according to certain religions to be right with God, right? We, they, they, they appear around Easter time, Lent and, and all that stuff. That they're just rules that supposedly make you right with God. He says in verse 11, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. His fear really is for them. He's saying, if you go down this path, you're not doing, you're not in a relationship God wants you to be in. So A is quit acting like slaves. Point B, or one. Point two is because the Savior has come, the arrival of the Savior. 
Verse 4 says, we're back to verse 4. When the time had fully come. Do you remember I told you earlier on when the father set the time for the son to be now a, a grown son? Part of what's going on with the time fully coming for Christ to come into the world is it was the right moment. And I've preached this and I've heard it over and over, especially at Christmas time. Rome had peace all over the world. The roads were good. The language was common. There was, it was a perfect moment in history for Jesus to show up so the gospel could spread. And that's true. Okay. Understand God's not reacting to history. God writes history. And so I do think historically God had Jesus come during the Pax Romana, the, the, the peace of Rome so that the gospel could spread quickly. It's also prophetic. There were things in the Bible that said he would come at certain times. Daniel had some stuff like that. The, the world was a mess at that time too. Even though Rome ruled, there were both pagans and Romans and Jews looking for a savior. I could read you the comments, but Warren Wiersbe said, listen, the world was such a mess that everybody was looking for a deliverer. That sin had gone so far that even the pagans were saying there's something wrong with all this. I pray that that's maybe true in our day, in fact. Uh, I pray that people understand there, none of these other things are working. But at the right moment, when the time had fully come, when the Jews in particular were now ready to stand, when you could now be grown-ups instead of uh, underage children under your tutor, when the father decided that now is the time to grow up, he sent point B, the right man. Okay, Not just anybody came, but it says in verse 4, God sent his son. To send somebody means they were someplace before, and there's a Greek word behind all this, but Jesus didn't just appear at christmas he didn't he wasn't created at christmas he was eternally part of the trinity he was sent from one place to another is the way the greek word meant he was pre-existent he was christ think philippians 2 there and he was born of a woman speaks of his virgin birth right also speaks of his humanity since man has sinned man must die and jesus comes and takes on flesh so that he can die i think it's a promise all the way back to genesis chapter 3 where God promises the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the seed of this woman, and he will, you'll, you'll bite his heel, but he'll crush your head. And he was born under the law, he says there. As a Jew, Jesus had to keep that law, and he did. He was presented at the temple. He was All the things a Jew had to do, Jesus kept the law perfectly, not just externally, I think, but internally. He's the only perfect Christian there ever was. He was the only perfect Jew there ever was. And so he sent the right man at the right moment on the right mission, which is point C, to redeem those under the law is point five. I'm sorry, verse five. To redeem those under law, to buy them from the slave market. We were under slavery and Jesus came and paid the price to free us. Um, I'll give you a couple illustrations here. And, and, and one is John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a his mom died when he was seven. He was sailing the seas on the ships when he was 11. Uh, he eventually became the captain of a slave ship. And at age 23, as captain of a slave ship, a great storm came. He, um, he cried out to God to save him and the ship, and God did. And he uh, thought of his life and how wretched he was. And he wrote the song, Amazing Grace, that God would save a wretch like me. That was his redemption story. Uh, and, and so we need to understand that we've been set free from something, bondage to sin, to, to the rules to overcome sin. And, and this is where I don't know, I can't see you well enough to know, but if you roll your eyes right now, I'll get over it. Um, 
not only is today Father's Day, tomorrow's what is Juneteenth. And a couple years ago, if you don't remember this, I do because Jackson was married two years ago, and we traveled through Oklahoma and Texas on this exact weekend. And I had never thought once of Juneteenth. I told you about the Osage Indians, and I, there was a great story there that I told you. And I'd learned about uh, what is celebrated tomorrow on Juneteenth. Um, and the, the basic storyline is this, that this, war, this nation fought a war to slave, uh, free slaves. Laws were written to free slaves. And the people in, this, in Texas in particular decided they weren't going to tell the slaves they had been freed for two more years. And so while legally slaves had been set free in this country, there were people still living like slaves in Texas, at least, for two more years. June 19th is the date when they finally were told, you're no longer slaves. Okay, we just sang that song, you're no longer slave to fear. I think there's a lot of Christians that understand legally they've been set free, but they're not living like it. It's not hit home for them yet. So again, tomorrow, if you get worked up or you like it or whatever, when you see a Juneteenth thing, think that's what God did for us. We need to get the news into our hearts and our heads that we are totally free in Christ. And so not only are we free, point three now is we've been adopted. Think about this. You've not only been set free from the, the judgment against you, it's like the judge took off his robe, walked behind and said, now I'm going to take you home with me. Yes, you were guilty. Now you're pardoned and now you're my child. And it's even more than like a biological birth. If you think about it, an adoption is a chosen act. And if you read your Bibles, go back and read Ezekiel 16 and find out uh, God didn't choose the best kid on the block to adopt them. He chose an abandoned baby in a ditch covered in blood, Ezekiel 16 tells us. And he eventually um, healed that child and brought them back and, and, and married eventually. It's, it's the difference between me again pointing to my birth certificate to tell you that I'm George Lakatos' son. When I could have a relationship with him, he says, listen, you're, you're adopted, he says in verse 5, that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Because verse 6 says, you are his sons. God spent, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So what happens when you get saved? The Holy Spirit comes and lives within you. It's, it's as if Christ is living his life through you. And one of the things that we, we miss about this is, Jesus would say the same word we find in verse 6, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Okay, catch this. When Jesus thought he was, when, when he knew he was going to the cross, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup. Abba is, and this is too simplified, but it's the word daddy. Okay? I don't want you to think infantile. I want you to just think relationship here. We are in a relationship because of what Christ has done for us by faith that we now have the Spirit of Christ in us who cries out, Dad, Abba, Father. Um, we, Jan and I are traveling to see Campbell this afternoon. It's, and I guarantee you, I don't care how busy or anything is, if one person in that restaurant or room says, Dad, I'm going to listen. Okay, That's different than being in a crowd even at church. We have, And God desires this relationship. He has such a desire for us to know him as Dad. Okay, And again, some of our broken dad relationships don't... If you don't have a good relationship with your father, I want you to know your heavenly father wants that kind of relationship with you. Okay, Almost wrapping up. It's very close, trust me. I thought of this. The Jews that are trying to convince the, the Galatians here, no, you have to jump through all these hoops and you can't be that close to God. The very Jews who 
and, and, and rightly so, took the uh, commandment, do not use the Lord's name in vain, and started say, making all kinds of hedges and rules around that to where they wouldn't even utter God's name. The reason we get Yahweh is it's basically a way to say God without saying God. Put that up against what Paul's saying here. You can call him Daddy. Get that contrast. The religions of the world, including Judaism, say God is so far out there, you can't get close to him. In fact, to the Jews, you better not even falsely utter his name in such a way because he's going to get you to Daddy. No wonder they're upset. No wonder they're saying, no, you've got to be circumcised and do all this because it's so foreign to them. It's not the way the world operates, but it's the way the Heavenly Father operates. Point B is we are adults. Did I give you point A? We are adopted. Point B, we're adults. So verse 7 says, you are no longer slaves, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has made you an heir. So you're either here today and you have no relationship with God. Maybe you think you're a good person falling into that same trap and think you're okay with God, but you have no relationship with him. You're not okay with God, okay? You're, the Bible tells us we're all under his condemnation. We need Christ. Maybe you're here today and you know you don't have a good relationship with God because you've done a lot of bad things in your world. Neither being too good nor too bad is how you're right with God. Okay, I don't care what road you take, you're not going to God. What you need is to place your faith in Christ. That's where Christ changed that. So some of you are lost. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. The answer is Jesus Christ. My, my heart has been this week, there's a lot of Christians that can show the documentation, but they have no relationship. And so when we tell people in the world it's about relationship, not about religion, but we can't, ex- we have no way to explain it because we don't experience that. One thing, and it's not the only thing, sometimes a child can do something that breaks a relationship with a parent. Would you agree with that? If you're a Christian here today and there's sin in your life, you need to repent of that, not because God's going to get you someday. Your sins are forgiven, but because it breaks the relationship with your heavenly father that he so desperately wants you to experience. Okay? Don't, think, don't forget that father whose son passed away. God wants you to know how much you love him and how much he loves you. I'll read this and then we'll close. This will be very familiar and hopefully you'll see where I'm going with this. This is found in Luke 15. There was a, a boy, we call him the prodigal son, and when he came to his senses, he said, by the way, before I get too far into this, Jesus is telling a parable, which is exactly what Paul's trying to convince him in Galatians here. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants, slaves, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I want you to note there, there's a semicolon in the sentence right there. Make me like one of your hired servants. He was going to go back to the father and say, hey, I know I'm your son. I've blown it. At least take me back and I'll be a slave. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. That's the image of God the father. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The son had probably been rehearsing this all the way home. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
There's a period there, not a semicolon. I think the son had every intention to say, please treat me as a slave. But, and it doesn't say this here, the father interrupted him. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's the same story Paul's trying to tell the Galatians. You have a father that can't wait for you to have a relationship with him. He doesn't want to make you a slave. The older brother got hacked off because he said, I've done all the right things. Guess what? Guess who had a good relationship going home that day? Was it the rule keeper or was it the prodigal? It's the prodigal because he came to the father and understood he was a son. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you that you have redeemed us um, from just the way people think and the way most of the world thinks is that you get what you deserve, good or bad. God, thank you that we are offered so much more than that in Christ Jesus. God, my prayers this morning are for those that don't know you. Um, They've never accepted you as their Lord and Savior. They've never confessed their sins for you. And maybe they've never seen that The God of the Bible wants to come running and embrace them and celebrate them, not condemn them for that. And so, God, if somebody doesn't know you today, I pray that they would know you for the first time today. Um, Whether they're really, really good or really, really bad, God, help them see they're on the wrong road when it comes to performance and works. God, for those of us that do know you, we'll spend the rest of our lives probably figuring this out, but teach us the reality of the relationship you desire over any kind of performance. God, I I can't fathom why you would love us. I can't fathom why you would send your son to show us your love and to invite us into that relationship, but you did. At just the right time, you sent your son. Thank you for this, God. May you be glorified as we respond now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.